Oh, we're live. This one was way quicker than usual. Welcome in, everybody. <laughs> I'm here with the awesome James Dalma. He's been on the channel before. If you're not familiar with James, James is one of uh, one of the folks that I really like to uh, pick their brain on when it comes to artificial intelligence, uh, especially related to Tesla and sort of where we're moving now from, you know, from that perspective, AI is becoming a huge sort of a buzzword nowadays. And I think uh, now it's, it's great to sort of sit down with James and really pick his brain on a on a few things so james thank you so much for coming on uh, i really appreciate you how you how you been uh good voice is back so i've been making the rounds trying to catch up on all the people i promised uh, time to that i didn't get to so i still awesome. sound a little rough but anyway it's great to see you again i've been looking forward to this conversation it was a lot of fun the last time so awesome. uh, so what do you want to talk about today yeah there there's a few things that i want to pick your brain on so the the main one that i'll start is so so I'm trying to think, okay, I'm going to start with this one and then I'll do the Tesla specific one. So the one thing that's been very interesting in the last couple weeks and couple months is that ever since this chat GPT moment has happened, I find that 80% of companies are trying to squeeze in this AI terminology into a lot of their quarterly reports or how they're framing their business. And I, if I look back to how you know, previous strands, even though there might not be any sort of, uh, I guess, connection between these topics, but like, say, crypto was a huge thing that was happening, the metaverse was a huge thing that was happening. Now I'm seeing something similar with AI being thrown around everywhere as a thing that's happening. My intuition tells me that uh, AI is a legitimate a world changing thing that is uh, currently being set up and it feels very foundational in nature. And in saying the next five to 10 years, it's probably going to be uh, analogous to what the internet did, where at the beginning, it's like, okay, we're trying to figure out the use cases. And then 10 to 20 years later, like everything runs on the internet. I just kind of want to pick your brain on, you know, are you seeing it in a similar way? Kind of talk me through, you know, how you're seeing this sort of transition happening. Do you think there's a lot of hype and not a lot of substance going on right now? We'll start there and, and kind of see where the conversation goes. I'd love to pick your brain. Well, there's a lot of hype for sure. Um, but mm -hmm. every time something moves, just because there's hype doesn't mean there's also no substance, right? Um, my, you know, my Twitter feed, I just like there were crypto scams. Now there are AI scams. Although they're, <laughs> they're more along the lines of like, you know, give me attention. I'm using the AI word in my tweets or, you know, I have my, AI, you, know, the, the, you know, like the, man, I've been using ChatGPT and here are the top 10 ways to do blah, blah, blah. You know, just, <laughs> yeah. it's an attention getter. Um, so there's hype in that sense, right? There's, I don't know, hype is probably might be the wrong word, fluff. There's, it's, it's become very fluffy. And mm. for people who've been in the space for a long time, in fact, <laughs> I see this, uh, I follow a lot of ML people and, you know, I follow, you know, I follow a lot of, um, Tesla people and, you know, a common thing about Elon bought Twitter and people like to complain to him about how things have changed in Twitter or whatnot. Well, ever since ChatGPT, the ML people, not all of them, but there's this thing that's constantly happening where people are like, Elon bought Twitter and my feed has just gone to crap, right? It's full of all this, and which has got nothing to do with that. It's just okay. that, you know, when AI wasn't as hot, as trendy as it is right in this moment, right. there weren't a lot of people who were who were trying to get attention by throwing the word around to the to the degree. I mean, it it's in the in the tech business, AI's been hot for varying degrees of hot for quite a while now. And so, like if you're a VC you know, you're, you were seeing more and more portfolio companies tossing AI and whatnot. But the chat GPT thing, it kind of brought, well, it did a couple of things. 
one thing is a lot of people inside the space, I mean, people inside the space, the ML space, people who do the research, build the companies, build the product. And real quick, you know. for those that are not familiar, ML stands for machine learning. Oh, machine because learning. I've been yeah. getting a lot of like new folks and I want to make sure they're up to speed on terminology. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's uh, machine learning is kind of a better term to be using for things like ChatGPT at this particular point. Uh, AI has all these connotations that different people bring to it, uh, especially AIG when you get to AIG, where like the more you go up these the you know the scale of loftiness of the term, the more different things people bring to it, and the less the harder it is to talk about it without dragging in all this baggage. So machine learning is is just, it's the building machines who acquire their functions through learning from data. That's machine learning. Teaching machines to learn from data so that they can provide functions. And that's what ChatGPT is. That's what stable diffusion is. Like all of this neural networking stuff, that's a subset of machine learning. And all the stuff that's really, all the stuff that's really happening right now is machine learning. Machine learning is a subset of AI. So you can call it AI if you want. But, mm. but a lot of the bigger things like, you know, does it have emotions? Is it conscious? You know, there are all these other ideas that are kind of caught up in AI. They're not part of machine learning, right? Machine learning is just like, can I build a piece of software and does it get better from using data, right? So mm -hmm. FSD, you know, is machine learning. Chat GPT is machine learning, right? And machine learning, it's been baked into things for a long time. Uh, Google's been using machine learning behind the scenes in their stuff for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. A lot of products have used it, but uh, in, when neural networks took off, machine learning started working on a whole new level because machine learning, uh, neural networks turn out to be, they, they scale really well. You make them bigger, you give them more data and the performance in increases. So one of the things that happened with ChatGPT, getting back to the original, uh, when the ChatGPT moment happened, first the public becomes aware of it. So it brings in all these, from the standpoint of the machine learning community, it brings in all this noise, right? Because there's yeah. all of this stuff. Uh, people who are not super familiar with the topic are bringing their aspirations, their fantasies, you know, to the field. And people inside the field who've been quietly working on these problems for a long time, suddenly they feel burdened. Um, so that's one thing that happened. Another thing is that it did bring the, the public along, right? But uh, but the uh, one interesting thing that happened, and this is something that's been happening over and over, like inside the machine learning, like you can imagine there's a spectrum of opinion, right? Yeah. There are people who are pretty optimistic about what's possible in the near term, in the long term. There are people who are more pessimistic. They've been around the block a couple of times. They've seen a couple of AI winters, right? Uh, and they're more, you know, on the curmudgeon end of things. You know, there's a whole <laughs> spectrum of people who are mildly skeptical to people who think it's just stupid, right? And for the most part, the... One of the things that happened when neural networks showed up is there were, I mean, one of the things that's shocking about neural networks when they showed up is that most, most of the field at the time that they showed up, like 80, 90% of the field thought neural networks were dumb. They were never going to work. They weren't going to amount right. to anything. So you can imagine how that shifted the needle, you know, ImageNet kind of showed up and you had this thing where like over a period of a couple of years, like the median of opinion, it just gradually shifted across the spectrum. And now we're in a world where most of the people in the field they are, I would call optimistic. They think this is a very promising technology. They're going to be able to do a lot of stuff with it. It has a bright future. It has, you know, a lot of stuff to do. There's still a chunk of people at one end who, who, you know, kind of don't get it. Okay, so the chat GPT thing happens. And chat GPT, it's kind of profound. 
uh, in the impact that it's had. But it's a from the machine learning standpoint, it's a relatively incremental advance. In fact, mm. um, so uh, you know, uh, OpenAI did GPT, GPT two, GPT three. Yep. These are all really interesting advancements. Each one of those steps. Now, going from GPT, GPT demonstrated some interesting stuff. It, it demonstrated that you could get pretty high levels of functionality just with a self-supervised model. Like you don't have to label the data. You just give it lots and lots of text and it'll learn from the text, right? And the more text you give it, the bigger the model you give, the more it learns. So that was pretty interesting. And then at GPT-2, they discovered that if you make the context window big enough, it could do this trick, zero shot learning, right? Where you could uh, you could give it a couple of examples inside its context window. The context window is uh, these models; they all have a certain amount of stuff they can ingest at once, and they're mm -hmm. they, they're typically they're built so they have a fixed length, and so mm -hmm. typically like say two thousand words or something like that kind of scale of thing, right? So so you they demonstrated that you could that you could have a pattern where you show a you know, you show an example of a, another example of a similar, you know, a similar, uh, uh, different, but similar, different from similar. And then, and then it would, com it could complete the pattern and it could learn patterns that weren't in its training data. Right. So that was called mm -hmm. zero shot learning. So that was really interesting inside the uh, machine learning community when it happened, because a lot of people had believed that just wasn't going to happen. It wasn't possible. Like mm -hmm. the only thing it could learn was the stuff that's explicitly inside the training data or trivially der derivative of it, right? Well, GPT-2 and then GPT-3, they demonstrated that really wasn't the case. These models, they really do generalize in some pretty profound ways. So what's been happening is like the feeling inside the community has been shifting and shifting and shifting, right? Toward more hope, more belief in the power of these things. Okay, well, going from GPT-3 to chat GPT, the models, the models, they didn't actually get any better, but people's reaction was completely different. Like the thing is, if you try to play with GPT-3, like if you know how to use GPT-3, know how to, cause you have to do that trick where you give it a couple of examples and on the third example, it extends it. Yep. And there are all yep. these templates for how to do that. And it's really good at answering questions or solving problems or doing all the stuff that chat GPT does. But the thing is, uh, it wasn't easy for normal people to use it, right? So the, the beauty of ChatGPT is OpenAI found a way to basically get the model to assume in all of its interactions that it is uh, not just having a conversation with a person, which is, I mean, because of all the ways you can complete a pattern, a conversation is one subset of those, right? Yeah, yeah. So like there can be like, you know, you read a passage in a book and then you do this. So you have half of a poem and you finish that. Well, yep. there's a kind of text, which is a back and forth dialogue between two people. And so that's a subset of all the different ways that you can complete stuff. So you can have, uh, so first of all, they got it to restrict its assumption to that. And then they got it to restrict its assumption further to where, it's two people talking. You're having, like, in other words, you're having a conversation with the machine, but the conversation is helping you. It's being helpful. It's responding mm. to your queries, right? And I think it wasn't at all clear that this was going to be possible to to basically narrow the way the model decided to respond to mm. a prompt to that. But OpenAid, I did it, and they they did it like really well. So now all of a sudden you've got this thing. The model isn't any smarter. It's not anymore. In fact, it's less capable than it used to be. You can do all these tests and you can show chat GPT is dumber than GPT-3. It's just on the raw stuff that it's got. But 
as a human being, you can re relate to it the way you relate to another human being. You can ask it a question. You can tell, do this thing for me, do that thing for me. You can have, you know, you, you can have a helpful conversation. It can be supportive. It can respond to you kind of the way people do. And it turned out that that just, it just triggered this thing. Now people can look at it and they're like, wow, this is amazing. Everybody suddenly has easy access to all the capabilities that were baked into this model, but were kind of hidden because you had to know the magic process. You had to go through I these see. sort of convoluted things in order to get it to tell you what it knew or to do what it could do for you. Now you just talk to it like a person. So the breakthrough, I mean, it is, I guess it's a, it's a legit breakthrough in that it's a way of getting the, the model to, to assume a certain, there is a certain characteristic to the dialogue it's having. It is an assi assistant, right? And so yeah. in the older chat uh, GPT scripts, you can see this explicitly because they frequently start with by saying, you are a personal trainer with this and this. And, and, you know, and the person you are talking to is a client who has this problem, this problem, this problem, you know, they know that they preface the dialogue by telling GPT, by telling the model, like what it is in chat GPT, you can still be helpful by doing that kind of stuff. Although the generality is getting good enough that it's getting to where it can figure out from context, what the role is it's supposed to be playing. It doesn't even, I, it does, I mean, it's still helpful to explicitly tell it what it's in anyway. So, so in a certain technical sense, the models didn't actually get better. But what happened is the user interface changed in this really profound way. And it unlocked all this capability that the models have had for a long time, right? So an interesting thing happens. Like if you're, in, if you're a machine learning expert, right? You look at this thing and on the one hand, you're like, well, nothing got any better. <laughs> and on the <laughs> other hand, you're like, but man, my wife, my kids, my boss, wants to use everyone's using telling, it. <laughs> like everybody can use it now. Like it just, it unlocked this amazing technology, which we've had sitting there that we just couldn't open up. So, yeah. so it's been interesting to see the field respond from my perspective to see how the field res responds to this kind of stuff. So is it legit? It's totally legit. Like um, the, like it's a profound tech like this. Even if we didn't advance beyond chat GPT 3.5 or GPT 4, those things, like it will take a long time just to absorb the benefits that those things have. And as a side effect, they haven't stopped getting better. They're going to get a lot better. So we have, there's this two compounding thing, but uh, it's there, yeah. <laughs> like it really, there are so many jobs where. You know, if you do this job and you take the time to learn to integrate this tool into the way that you do your job, your productivity is going up 10x. And that's yeah. not an exaggeration. I mean, literally 10. And, yeah. you know, there are a lot of jobs that when they learn to use this tool, that's going to happen. Of course, there are other jobs where, you know, there, you know, you had a call center that had 100 people in it. And now you can do it with one person. And chat GBT, you know, the whole yeah. everything that 100 people were doing. Before, Let so. me pick your brain on this real quick, because this so this is super amazing insight for me because when I when I thought about you know my my layman way of thinking about the the GPT the chat GPT thing is that wow the the they and I know it's a machine learning thing it's a better terminology but in my head it's like AI this AI figured out how to talk better with us I'm like okay but what what's really happening and correct me if I'm wrong here is there's two there's two separate things happening there is the there is the computational aspect, which is like the raw power that the that the machine learning system has to process information. And then there's the user interface problem almost. It's like a like the interface layer that says, okay, I need to figure out how to make this dumb enough for a human to understand how to actually leverage the power 
of this machine learning system. Is that a good way of thinking about what you just said? I mean, it's not inaccurate. I, I'm going to okay. rephrase it slightly. Please. Right. Okay. So almost everything that the model is capable of doing, it, it acquires in pre-training. So, and the pre-training, that's 99.99% of all the work that goes into, say, making chat GPT, right? So the GPT 3.5, whatever, with the core of GPT, that's where most of the compute goes. And then they do two things after that. They do this thing called instruction tuning, and then they do this thing called reinforcement learning from human feedback. So the first one you do is you, is you, is now you've got this thing is trained up and it can finish text. Uh, it, like you can start something and it'll finish it. And it's amazing. Good. Amazing. But now what we want to do is we want to, we want, we want it to only respond as if we were asking it to do something and it was responding. So you go through this brief training phase where, where you reinforce it heavily. You, you like, you, you give it, you, you, t you say, do this for me. And any answer it gives you, which is not the answer to your question, you mm -hmm. give negative feedback and you give positive yep. view. So it is training, but it's this very narrow kind of training that you're doing. And it's labeled stuff. It's, it's examples that are created by humans. Like they have a, you know, open AI, they get a whole bunch of people and they write these dialogues. Like this is a dialogue between two people where one person's helping the other person. Maybe it's a doctor and a patient or a tax advisor and a tax client or whatever. You just, you get all these, these things. Mm -hmm. And, and you train the, the model now, this very narrow training, which is like, this is your input. This is your output. This is your input. This is your output. This is what I want you to do. And so that creates an instruction tuned model, which is it's a, it's, chat GPT, it's been told, okay, you know, all this stuff, but the only answer I want from you is the one where I'm asking you a question and you interpret Got it as it. a question and you respond to me. Okay. So that's the first thing that happens. So that takes this, this, some additional training, right? The comp computation required for that training is quite small compared to the pre-training, very small, like mm -hmm. thousands of times smaller. And then there's one more thing that you can do after that, which is there are all kinds of helpful responses that you can get in response to a query, but people prefer certain ones over other ones. Like they like the polite ones as opposed to the abusive I ones. I mean, they're both the response. <laughs> to the so there's like an alternate universe where ChatGPT is a total jerk and he's just right. like, <laughs> sure. yeah. It, and they could have done that. You could easily train the one that's insult GPT, right? Yeah. And everything it says is talking down to you. That's awesome. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's your mom or, you know, it's yeah. that uncle that thinks you're never going to amount to anything or whatever. It's making yeah. you feel bad about about yourself you can totally do that right but they you know that they you know anyway so then they do the reinforcement learning from human feedback is is they give it a they you know now you go through this phase now it's been tuned into this thing where it's responding to your queries right it's been yeah. it's been narrowed down so that that's the dialogue and now you you want you train it to give you better answers opposed to worse ones. And in particular, mm -hmm. answers humans like. So you get a bunch of humans together, right? And you feed questions in and it and you have it pop out four different responses. And then they say, of these four, I like this one best, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you do that for a while, right? And then it learns to give the response that people like. That's the reinforcement learning from human feedback. So humans are providing feedback to the model and it's giving that. And at the at the tail end, if you do it right. You know, I mean, there's obviously a lot of, you know, tricks to getting this all work really well. But at the end of it, you get chat GPT or you get GPT-4, right? Yeah. So you've taken something, you've trained it, it's in a dialogue with a person and it's yeah. trying to be helpful. And then you add this other thing on, which is what's the most helpful thing you could say in turn in the in the opinion of a, of a human being 
receiving mm. the, the you know the output from you. So and at the tail end of that, you get ChatGPT, right? So you've got this machine. It's 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 interactive because it's been trained not just to complete but to interact with you. And it, furthermore, it's been trained to be maximally helpful to try to come up with the most helpful thing that it could do. And they're amazingly helpful. They're really, really good at being yeah. helpful. Uh, it, now today, most of the examples of these things you see are responses to really, really simple things where you're like, write me a limerick, write me an essay, um, answer this simple factual question for me. Um, and, uh, and it'll try to be as helpful as it can. Incidentally, there's this thing called hallucination where you, know, you can ask it to tell you the answer to something, and yeah. uh, and it'll give you an answer even if it doesn't know the answer. It'll make yeah, one up. Just make it up. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, I've well, had that happen you know, to me before. <laughs> there, there, yeah, I mean, it's a big it's a big problem with these yeah. things right now. It's a problem because if people are not aware that that not everything that comes out is factual. But but here's the deal: the reason it's lying to you is it's trying to be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't want to tell you it doesn't know. So they're so that's a thing they didn't anticipate in this, and they're figuring mm. out how to fix that now. And they will get it fixed, right? The hallucination yeah. problem, it's going to get fixed. But right now we're in kind of this weird place where it's trying to be, it's so trying to be helpful that it doesn't want to tell you, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't want to disappoint you. It just really wants to give you an answer. Yeah, That's really amazing. wants. So, so it'll come up with the most plausible, like, you know, if you're that lawyer and you go in and say, hey, write my brief for this case yeah. or whatever the deal. And it's like, I'll do my best. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if it doesn't know how to do it, it makes up yeah. a lot of incredibly plausible sounding stuff. So then the user is fooled. You know, and then you get in front of the judge and the judge is like, yeah, all these cases you cited, they don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like so let me let me ask you this then. So it sounds like it sounds like the the so OpenAI in this example has like you described, ChatGPT is a uh, a subset of the potential total capability of that machine learning system where ChatGPT is just a way to interface with that compute yeah. power. I don't even know right. how to define it, right? So how, so then what, help me think through this. So what are the, like how much more impactful could the current state of OpenAI's machine learning system could be? Like, let's say there is zero progress, okay? And, and fast forward five years, how many more things could come out just from that machine learning system that doesn't exist today that maybe I mean, it's just kind of like me asking you to be an oracle in a sense, but I'm just trying to conceptualize just is chat GPT really 1% like, you know, 1% of the total capability. I'd love to. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, so in a sense, chat GPT is one really amazing trick that open AI figured out how to do with GPT three. 3.5. 3.5 is this minor, uh, uh, you know, a, a, yeah. a, it's basically GPT-3, which has been around for years, right? So it's not new. It's GPT-3 equivalent models. They've been trained by lots of other people. First time it was trained, cost many millions of dollars. Recently, companies are retraining GPT-3 equivalent models and for like 100 grand in like mm. a day kind of thing. So the ability to do this stuff has come way down. Okay. The tech, the technology is going to go way beyond where it is right now. But even if it stopped right here, even if the only thing we had to work with was to build on GPT-3 equivalent models, because there are so many, there are very likely, almost certainly, a very large number of ways to use these models aside from chat GPT that are is kind of similarly profound. And one example of this is, uh, 
uh, you know, there's this thing, GitHub Copilot. So Microsoft mm-hmm. bought GitHub, GitHub licensed the, you know, OpenAI's, one of OpenAI's models and tuned it up to do code completion. Okay, so this thing, it's not in a dialogue. If you're a programmer and you have a programming window, right? What it does is it completes your code for you in, in clever ways. So you start typing a program and it's watching you. And as soon as it has a sense of what it is that you want to write, it writes it for you. Right. So now this is not a dialogue. This is a very different way than a dialogue. You don't go in there and say, write me a program to do this. Like you can do that with chat GPT and it can write programs. Right. But you can do a thing, for instance, you know, program. I don't know if you program, but programmers Mm -hmm. uh, frequently, you know, you write all of this logical code, which can be a little hard to read. So it's pretty common to write regular text called comments that goes in in the code and it explains what you're doing so that when you come back or somebody else comes back and looks at the code, they can quickly figure out- If you're a good coder, (laughs) you've done that. (laughs) So a trick that you can use because a lot of code has a comment and then the function that implements a comment and then another comment, especially good code. It'll have lots of comments and then the code and lots of comments. So it's very careful. So so one of the things that you can do with, with- with something that's been trained on code is you write the comment and it writes the code, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, just completing. Yeah. Like, it's like, if this was a real program, what would come next, right? Mm. It's just doing that trick and it does it really well. And it is super useful. And people, I mean, so I haven't spent a lot of time with it myself. I played with it some, mm-hmm. but people who really get into using this tool, programmers, they, they're talking about 10x improvements. And this is a 10x improvement on somebody who's highly skilled, highly paid, highly sought, right? And, there's an, and the value on this, we're just scratching. The biggest part of the reason why the value is just getting scratched is because it takes a long time for these, for these tools to propagate into the workforce, for people to learn to use them, to learn to use them well, for us to figure out how to adapt the tools to what we're doing and all the different jobs and stuff. So there's this human speed of diffusion of the technology. And so like if GBT, you know, if what we had froze right now and we just waited for it to diffuse through culture, the culture that we have learned to use it better and learn to get like, you know, a lot more people on board with using it, that would Mm -hmm. be transformative. That's like, doubles doubles the, the productivity growth for the next 20 years or something Got like it. that. So, so it's a big it. deal. It's a really, really big deal. It's profound wow. just where it is now. And, and this, is, this is one of the big things about this tech is that like the stuff that I just said, like not every ML person will agree with this. A lot of people will. And I would say that probably of the ML people who are also, who are, they're not just in the ML world but they're also in the business world. They're in the investing world. They've worked in other jobs and that kind of stuff. They have an appreciation of how the economy works and all that kind of stuff. I think a, a, a pretty substantial fraction of those people, probably a majority would agree with what I just said, because, you know, I'm a techno optimist, but it's becoming obvious enough that this is a really big deal. And as yeah. this tech makes its way into, you know, more, it, the more areas that can use it, you know, it's like this explosion and it's still a pinprick. Like it's got so far to go to expand wow. um, the generative stuff, generating music, generating speech. Uh, we, we, we now know you can generate video. It's not a huge extrapolation of the capabilities we have where you type in a description of the movie you want and it makes a movie like that's yeah. It's an extrapolation from where we are. Like we can't do that today. But I don't think there are a lot of people in the field who would seriously argue that that is not going to be possible in the next five or 10 years. 
right? Where you right. get like a Hollywood blockbuster quality movie. It writes a script. It does the, it does the music design. It does the yeah. sound design. It figures out the cinematography because all of the sub sub all of the components that go into a movie have been demonstrated to be generatable via this kind of technology. So it's a matter of like refining them, getting them together, polishing the product. That's all going to take time, but this is going to happen. And so what happens in the movie business when, you know, when some 17 year old can make a Hollywood blockbuster, you know, as his summer project, right? Is that something you can do? What, what humans bring to it is taste and discrimination and that kind of stuff. You're, you know, you're, you're the person that can tell the wheat, separate the wheat from the chaff because the machines, they're still not people. They're still machines. Yeah. And so bringing, but, you know, if you have a discriminating taste and you're willing to get into the details, the, the AI, it's going to be able to do the rest. It'll be able to do all the heavy lifting associated with just about any kind of create, you know, most of the creative endeavors that we do today. And this includes the design of machines, the writing of programs. And, you know, yeah. it also, you know, includes, I don't know, like everything else is creative that we've got. Like I, I have yet to see uh, an aspect of, you know, human creativity that isn't accessible to these technologies. Got it. Yeah. The, the imagery that comes to mind when you're describing this, and I can't remember if, remember if I heard this maybe on the All In podcast or it's just, I don't know. But the imagery that comes to mind is back when I was growing up with the internet, I remember, so like Netscape was a huge deal, right? You had mm-hmm. dial up. You had uh, you had basically the call it the piping, which I'll I'll make loosely say I'll call machine learning in this case. But you had basically the world was starting to be connected, and those connections in themselves was extremely profound. But then when once Netscape came on board, it seemed like it finally unlocked yeah. a way for humanity to actually put the internet system to good use. But then you fast forward, I don't know, 10, 30 years, how twenty, however long it's been since Netscape. Now you have much bigger pipes that has a lot more throughput of the internet i'll call it, i'll call it like this which i i it's analogous in my head to uh, say better compute power more complex uh, machine learning systems whatever you want to call it. it just makes that thing more powerful and bigger and then the way we interface with those pipes wasn't just netscape but it was chrome and then apps and then smart uh you know smart objects and you know a bunch of different ways that we interface with those pipes so to me it seems like it very much feels like a dial-up Netscape type moment that we're now just listening to you uh, speak, and then what's going what's going to come down the pike is going to be analogous to that internet pipe getting much much bigger, so that you can have a lot more throughput, and then the ways we interface with that pipe is going to be multifaceted, not just Netscape. It's going to be a bunch of other things. So is that is, is that a good way of thinking about? I, I think it's a good having? analogy. Uh, I yeah. think the analogy under underestimates the impact, though. Uh, it, it underestimates it on, on two things. It, it, okay. The AI thing is going to happen faster um, okay. than the internet did. Uh, one of the things about the internet, one of the big limiters on the internet, like, you know, going back to the, if the tech didn't get any better, you could go to, like, I remember, you know, at the day Netscape showed up, it didn't add anything, right? Like the day HTML and web browsers, because everything you could access was already available on Gopher, right? So if you were, if you were around on the internet pre- pre-Netscape, there were there were sites, they weren't websites, but they were accessible via this clunky kind of text-based interface called Gopher. And there were others, right? There were, you know, there were various bulletin board systems and stuff and you could get this stuff. So Netscape shows up. So, but then Netscape shows up and it's an explosion. Why? Well, now it's so much easier to navigate. It's the interface thing. 
that that was the trigger, right? So now in order to really get the internet going everywhere, well, now we got to lay a lot of wire. <laughs> we got to get DSL into people's houses. We got to put cable in. People got to buy this stuff. You could have stuck with the computers of the time. Like they could run web browsers, not, not the web browsers we have today, but arguably, you know, there's a lot of candy and filling, which is not to say it's useless, but there's a lot of gloss. There's a lot of, you know, to websites today. And, uh, and you don't need it to deliver the essential functionality. It's helpful, right? But that, that initial step up of building a system where people are just like, oh, I can click on this and I can click on that and I can type in the search box, right? It's, Google was, without Google or good search engines, prior to Google, prior to good search engines, the internet wasn't as useful as it is. So that's another really critical mm -hmm. building block to getting the internet to go. But the, but the big limiter in the beginning was you had to put all these wires in, right? And, uh, but you know, then when the app thing shows up, the iPhone shows up and everybody's got to go buy an iPhone. Right. But once the iPhone's in place, you come up with a good, eye. You, you come up with, uh, what was that, that viral game with the birds? Um, oh, uh, flop, uh, uh, flappy bird. It's it something flappy? anyway. So, like that? you know, yeah. you come up with a viral game or you come up with Skype. Skype is a good example, right? Like Skype yeah. showed up after the internet had already basically gotten going and they were like, Hey, download this piece of software and get long distance calls for free. <laughs> right. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. everybody already had the computer at that point, people already had internet connection. So boom, you know, it takes off because it can spread as fast as people can download. It. And this is why, you know, chat GPT, uh, chat GPT is a slow text interface to a, a to a web service, right? And it comes out and it can go from zero to hundred million users in a week, which it did, right? It was the fastest growing uh, new internet service of all time. And you could, it could do that because the infrastructure had been laid. So in the early days of the internet, we didn't have the in infrastructure we had to build it, build it. So AI, much in AI can bring a tremendous amount of value to what we're doing today, just for the cost of the download. So, so in that aspect, it's going to ramp a lot faster. And then the other thing is the core technologies in AI are ramping much, much faster than the core technologies. I mean, for the internet to go, aside from building out the wires and that kind of stuff, the computers had to get faster. We needed more programmers. <laughs> we needed more web programmers. Yeah. Remember, there was a, like in 2000, you know, um, like all the people who used to wait tables were now designing websites. <laughs> you know, sure. like it, was yeah. the, it was the other quickie job because we just needed so many websites designed. You know, it, we were limited by that kind of stuff. But we won't be limited it, by headcount in, in AI. It, it's, it's some kind of limitation, but it's not nearly the limitation that... Uh, that it was, for one thing, a lot of the heavy lifting, we can get the people who know how to use it, they know how to use AI to do the heavy lifting part. And so we out, you know, you, on day one, you have 10 times as many people. That's crazy. Uh, all, all the people who can use it. So, so anyway, the effect is going to spread a lot faster and ultimately the effect is gonna be a lot more profound. Um, there's this, uh, uh, who was it? He's um, a uh, opinion columnist for the New York Times and a Nobel economics Nobel art. But he said he had he's famously quoted it saying like the effect of the internet in five years. We're gonna see in hindsight that the internet was no more important than the fax machine. And so he oh, said Oh yeah, this. I remember this. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh and the thing Oops. is like at the time he made that comment, it was a not unreasonable thing to believe because we had right. seen the fax machine come, you know, it was an information technology. In a lot of ways it was similar to what the internet was offering people. But it, you know, obviously the comment grossly underestimates the, the 
a variety of things you can do with the internet that you can't do with a fax machine, right? It's not just a different way for people to exchange information. There's way more to it than that. And similarly, AI is probably going to outstrip what, you know, all the skeptics think today, because it's, it's got that same thing going on. Like we don't know what we don't know about how people are going to use it. And the space of things we don't know is so much larger than the space of things that we're doing right now. It's just ridiculous. So, yeah. the, so the effect is going to be very, very large. It's very hard to predict it because it's going to be super chaotic moving forward from this point. Um, and like I, I spend all my time <laughs> anymore <laughs> trying to get a little bit of a glimpse into how this thing is going to unfold. And I can yeah. tell you, it's, it's a mess. I, it, <laughs> I, not, it's not a mess in a bad way. It's just really yeah, complicated. Yeah. There's so many elements to what is going on, not the least of which is the way the tech unfolds from this point forward. Because there are so many wave fronts that we could decide to move forward on. And uh, like, here's a really big change that just happened, like literally in the last month, which was that, you know, ChatGPT comes out and, uh, and we're in this world where, you know, Google has Palm and there's Chat and it, it, it looks like there's four or five big companies that are going to own all the AI. And the way you're going to use the AI is the way you use ChatGPT. You're going to get an account. You're going to pay 20 bucks a month. You're going to type into a dialogue box and they're going to give you back what they want to give you. It'll be... Mm -hmm you will be protected. <laughs> right? yeah. So, uh, you During know, 1984. and yeah. you know, but the other thing is that the, is that the technology and the more important this technology becomes, the more that, you know, the fact that there's a half dozen entities controlling it becomes, you know, fertile ground for creating an oligopoly or, you know, or, you know, limiting the, the, the benefits that this has. But the thing is, it was because because the models are so big and they take so much compute. I mean, you need a lot of computers to run them on. Uh, and, you know, if you try to run on a small computer, it's too slow to be useful. This just seemed to be inevitable. It's, it's like not everybody has Google in their house because you need a Google data center to run Google. Right. So it's right. naturally a service. And we were thinking it was going to be a service. Right. And then a funny thing happened on the way to the bank. Right. Which was. A couple, it's a Facebook release, some models, not some, not as big as GPT-3, but decent sized models. And they released the weights and all the code and the weights and everything on a research uh, license. So you can't use it commercially, but you could get a copy of the weights and you could play around with it if you to, to try to understand what they did. And there was this explosion of interest in those models and people immediately jumped on them. And we, we quickly discovered that, that people who were motivated to could figure out how to take the model, squeeze it down, get it to run really fast and put it on their laptop, right? Mm. So the thing is the growth on this, it, you could call it edge or laptop or whatever computing, it has completely changed the perceived landscape in the last like four, six weeks, right? Because it seemed inevitable just two months ago that what we were going to see was the equivalent of search, of, of you know, internet search. Well, like internet search, it is only run by really big companies that have giant data centers. Like that space is owned uh, mm. entirely uh, by those things. And you can't really compete with it on your computer at home, right? Uh, but now it looks like that's actually not true. Like that, right. that is not necessarily the way that these technologies are going to evolve forward. Because we're learning that if you care, you can squeeze them down and you can make them run on a small amount of hardware. You just have to, you have to want that and you have to bring a lot of cleverness to it. You have to bring the creativity 
and the resources of like the open source community. And because this is all being done by, by open source hobbyists, like all the stuff I just described, it's not being done by researchers, right? Academics, they don't care about being able to run it on your laptop for the most part, right? They're writing a research paper and investigating, you know, the fundamentals of how the technology works. Big companies, they may not make much money if you run it on your laptop. They would much rather run it in the data center or they can keep them all in one place, tune it. It's easier to do have the updates and that kind of stuff. And, you yeah. know, you, you, you can guardrail the technology and that kind of stuff to avoid, you know, the negative consequences if something doesn't work out the way that you expected it to. But you put it in users' hands. Now you've got all of the beautiful and ugly things that the, whole, that the, that the world will do with this. Uh, but one of the things that you get is the pace of innovation is just like on a whole different Explodes. level. Yeah. It's an order of magnitude higher, two orders of magnitude higher than what we had before that. And so like just in the last six weeks, the, the way the whole the future looks has really I mean, it might still turn out to be something that runs in data centers. It's not clear. It's going to depend on how both the big models and the small models evolve going forward in time. Like what is the, cause the, the big models are better than the small models are, but if the small models are good enough and they're cheap and you trust mm. them because it's running in your computer and you don't need an internet connection, right? Like Optimus doesn't need a high bandwidth link back to the data center to do his job in the factory. It'll fit Figured in his head. You know, I mean, that's a different Optimus then than the one where, you know, Optimus only works if he has a high bandwidth, you know, link to a super huge server. Right? Interesting. So, so I guess the, the, the way to think about this is that in, in say the next five, 10 years, you might have a situation where, or it's looking like you're going to have a situation where artificial intelligence or machine learning systems, uh, whatever term, terminology you want to use, uh, they will be, uh, they could be extremely useful uh, in a package that doesn't require a, a giant server or a giant entity to run the computation. You could have something that's profoundly, profoundly life-changing running locally, which, um, which would obviously, I think, I mean, conceptually speaking, that that's probably a really good outcome, right? Because you're not, you're no longer being tied to you know, those three or four brains of humanity that are going to tell you, or even worse, maybe one or two brains of humanity that are uh, helping you achieve the things you're trying to get done, but it's sort of biased to how they want to present the data to you, right? Uh, instead, you'll have systems that are propagated really across every single chip or computational device that's going to be able to uh, do that compute for you. And those can also be, I'm guessing, they can be optimized uh, uh, in different ways as well, which is going to allow more and more players to come in and maybe customize those use cases for different things as well. You're no longer depending, like the Google, the, the whole Google thing with YouTube, right? If I use YouTube as an example, I'm at the mercy of YouTube to give me the tools that I'm looking for mm -hmm. as a as a video person. So if you think about it in the in the context of AI, I'm, I could be at the mercy of I don't know OpenAI or whoever to give me the capabilities I'm looking for. But if it's sort of available to all, that each person or each developer or developer group can figure out use cases for that code. So and then so I guess the the thing I'm trying to get my head wrapped around is like how how big of a loss would it be from a say compute perspective if everything moved locally like like is there a world where the local compute 
is 99% of the compute and 1% of the compute happens in these giant mega servers or whatever you want to call it that's for for very niche use cases so how how should we think about that computational differential because i'm guessing my my computer is probably a millionth of a, a fraction of a percent okay. most more of the capable, compute is, right? is local today right okay and google has okay. a big data center and they have a lot of computers but they have way less than one computer per user and all the users have computers right so mm. you you know so if google uses ten thousand computers to serve a million people so that's 0 0.1 0 0.01 computer per user but almost all the users that are using them, they have a computer. So this means that Google's computers are 1% of the computers used to access Google. Just so Interesting. most okay. of the compute is out there in the real world. It's not in the data centers, right? That data centers can be super productive because they're organized to be super productive all the time. But you know, when I go to Google to do a Google query and you look at all the quote that's going into it, like 99.99% of the compute is my MacBook redrawing the screen and showing me the, you know, because like yeah. five packets come back from Google or something like that. And then, you know, my laptop will do like 100 billion numerical operations to render those and put them on a window and make it, you know. So most of the compute is there. Most of the compute today is in user interface stuff like you know, it's to make stuff pretty and that's useful. That's not wasted. It's not just gloss because it makes all this stuff accessible to us, you know, more yeah. conveniently and all that kind of stuff. But that's where most of the compute goes today. Now that compute could be redirected and some of it will probably will be redirected. This, the local thing, I mean, there's a, there's an aspect of going local where it substitutes for the centralized control thing, which is good. And you alluded to that, right? I don't think the world is going to end up being either either or because there, there are totally legit cases where you want it centralized and there are other totally legit cases where it just works a lot better if it's out in the world, right? So you're, we're going to see both of them. And the question is like, what's going to run on which and, and what's the relative capability going to be? The super, super generalized models, they really benefit from a lot of scale. Like we're going to want to run them as big as possible. But one of the things, like if you are, you know, Say you want to talk to a doctor that's an AI, right? You've got your whatever ailment and you just want to talk through it with the thing. Find out like, what are the possibilities? How should I think about this? What are the lifestyle changes and all that kind of stuff? Well, you know, ChatGPT could do that, but ChatGPT can do that. And it can also be your accountant. It can be, it can hold your hand if your dog died. You know, there's all kinds of things it can do but because it's completely general. But on the other hand, if you built a version of this thing, which was just like, you know, Dr. Chat or whatever, Dr. GPT <laughs> that you download or whatnot, um, it could be much, much smaller. It's much more specialized to a particular task. So if there's one particular thing that you want to do, and if you're a professional, I was just talking about, you know, Copilot, like for professional programmers, like that's really useful and it's made for that job. And it can be much, much smaller than Chat GPT and just as useful because it's specialized to the task that it's got. So, so there's a there's a there's a place for the copilot thing to run on your on your laptop or run on your desktop while you're writing a program. And if you're at a company, you don't have to send your code to OpenAI. You know, maybe it's proprietary. Maybe you're in the military. You know, maybe yeah. there are reasons you don't want your code to to leave the building. And uh, and you know, so that's a reason to have it local or to have your or to have your own control. And the other is. You know, you can work when you don't have an internet connection. Um, you you get a lot of consistency, right? Like if if OpenAI makes an update that changes all the answers and stuff, you could decide not to update your local version and stay with the version that you had before. 
you know, this, the service never goes down, uh, you know, yeah. and you never, you, it's not like five years from now, well, I get my chat GPT answer, but I have to wait for watch, through, watch an ad before I get to, <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause things change in the world with centralized yeah. services and stuff. And so users, users just have more options. And so that's good, but there are more options. It's, it, it may or may not be better depending on how the tech evolves going forward. And the, the fundamentals, like we don't know the limits. Like we, th this is one of the things in the field, right? That for a really long time, like after, after ImageNet, you know, the people who are on the more skeptical side, they're saying, oh yeah, that's great. But you know, it's going to plateau next year and that'll, that'll be it. And pretty much every year now you hear people are like, yeah, that was as good. It, like that was really amazing year that we just had, but uh, you know, that's probably the end. We won't see any more of that stuff. And every year, every year, stuff happens in ML every year, four yeah. or five things happen that everybody in the field would have told you a year before was not going to happen. Right. I mean, that's yeah. how fast it moves and how it's just breaking expectations year after year after year. Um, so and you're sensing no slowdown from that perspective whatsoever. None. If anything, you're seeing a, you're seeing it, the opposite. <laughs> There's yeah. this thing that happens as human beings. I feel I experience this as a human being. I see other people in the field do it too, right? It's, this is like with FSD. You drive FSD, right? And yep. you see yep. and you see the gains coming and that kind of stuff. Yep. But it always feels, you know, like you're driving FSD. You've been on the same version for like two or three weeks. Like it's not really getting better all that fast, right? You only really see the see it if you go if you look back because people yep. habituate over short periods of time and people in the field do it too right where you you know three weeks has gone by and there hasn't been a big breakthrough and you're like oh, i guess that was the end or something even though you know the big breakthroughs are like two months apart yep. or three months apart or something like that and then the next yep. one happens and you're freaking surprised like i thought it was over and here we have this new amazing thing so yeah people's in, people's intuitive sense of things are so at odds with how, you know, the trend is because the trend yeah. happens on the order of months. Right. And, and you know, you never see this stuff coming. Nobody saw chat GPT coming. Nobody thought like, um, alpha go was going to happen. Alpha fold when that happened, it just blew people's minds. Uh -huh. Right. That like protein folding was such a huge unsolved problem. And so yeah. many people had spent so much time and it was such an important problem. We thought about it for so long. People had tried so many different ways, you know, and then these guys from DeepMind, they show up. <laughs> I mean, I'm making it sound a little easier than it is, but really it's a small number of people over a relatively small amount of time. And that's it. Yeah. Right. And nobody yeah. believed it. It was like the original ImageNet thing. They're just like, yeah. no, wait, that didn't just happen. It can't yeah. be that easy. We've been doing yeah. this for years. Like this is, this has got to be harder than that. And it was just like there. And um, so those things keep happening they've been happening on a super regular basis for over 10 years now. So betting it's going to stop is, the, is like not a, a good errand. It, yeah. it could stop, but yeah. like, uh, like I could, I could stand at a whiteboard and I could write ideas all day long that are like really big ideas and, and maybe 10% of them will work. Maybe 1% of them will work, but a lot of them are going to work. And there are things that people just haven't tried yet because there are so many possibilities that there aren't enough people to <laughs> explore the space, right? Yeah. It's like, you, you know, we have this giant new continent of North America and you got like two guys to explore it and it's just gonna take a while, right? The fact that you're not finding stuff is no indication of the limits of what's actually there. It's just, you just don't have enough people to dig, to dig through it. So um, it's where, you know, you're just, I mean, 
two guys exploring North America, how long would it take to find it all? <laughs> I mean, you would keep finding new stuff every day for for like, what, a thousand years or Forever. something? <laughs> right? So, you yeah. know, that's where we are. Although we're starting to harness AI to help explore the space. I and mean, one of the things is that the tech feeds back on itself and you use it to multiply exploring the space faster. And, and well, that's, that's actually what... part of what's going on, right? It's like the yeah. March of nines. Every nine is 10 times as harder, right? But right. in the meantime, you've gotten 10 times faster. <laughs> so, yeah. so the nines, they actually come on approximately linear spacing, even though they're exponentially more difficult because the capabilities of the systems also increase exponentially. Right. This, and this is why just my, my intuition says that when people say that artificial, like, you know, you've said this is going to scale way faster than the Internet did in, in its sort of profound nature. And and I hear many people talk about just how this is game changing. When you think about that, the... We, we've just figured out how to use machine learning, which has been around forever, and it's exploded in popularity and usefulness because we've just figured out how to interface that with human beings so it's actually helpful. But those two things are actually getting much better and much faster as we're speaking, and we also only have a fraction of a fraction of the total number of people that are going to be working in this solution in the next five to ten years. How is this not going to be the most game-changing thing that we'll ever experience like that's that's how i feel you know that's how i feel yeah. and um i don't know and, and it's it's for, for somebody like me who's not super technical and and i'm you know i i rely on you to learn you know by the way thank you so much for sharing all this dude. i'm like just you're blowing my mind for, with every sentence i'm like geez that's another thing that i didn't connect the dots on but um i, I just feel like it, it really it's just a matter of time for this thing to truly change our lives. And if I use my lived experience, how I've experienced this recently is the one day I, I woke up, I had my coffee. We're talking about coffee before we went live. So I, you know, I ground up my, uh, my beans and I, you know, I make coffee for my wife and I, and then I sat on JGPT and I did a bunch of stuff for my videos and then a bunch of research and, you know, double check, make sure they're right. And then uh, I hopped in my car and then it drove me to my errands. And then I, and I start thinking as the car's driving me around, I'm like, okay, I've been awake for like five hours and I've just, I used ChatGPT and a self-driving car the entire time. And like a month ago, neither of two, these two things were actually like useful for me. And that's like, they both had zero to one moments. Uh, FSD had an update that allowed me to use, uh, allowed me to use it in my area where it was, you know, close to unusable because it was such a pain in the ass to monitor the system. And then with version 11, all of a sudden, my wife's like, oh, I didn't even know you weren't driving. I'm like, okay, what just happened? So like all of a sudden, like my, my world turned upside down. And then, and then the, the entire day bef before I got into my car, I was on an AI system doing stuff. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? It just like happened, you know? Uh, yeah, it, it just feels incredibly profound. And it really does feel like we're just at the beginning. Yeah, so uh, getting back to the yeah. internet example, like how long yeah. was it be between, you know, Netscape showed up and you had a day where you hadn't used you. I mean, you can't even remember it now. Like it's so yeah. hard to remember. Like there, there were days when we didn't use the internet and then there was a long period of time where you hardly ever use the internet. Right. Yeah. And now it's like, you can't stop. Like, <laughs> I don't have an hour that goes by. Like I'm so wired here. Like I, I, I don't have five seconds go by. All day long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's just, uh, yeah, it's yeah. you forget you get habituated as I was as I was saying as we do yeah. and that means like one of the things about that is that you can't trust your intuition about a lot of this kind of stuff you have to actually go like look at the data and work from the data if you're if you're going to 
extrapolate, if you're going to try to extrapolate the curve, right? If you're going to do that kind of stuff. I mean, you don't have to do this right now. The, like the thing I was saying about how, like, you know, if you spend some time with chat GBT and you get a sense of like what it can do, and then you start writing down, okay, how would so-and-so use this? How would so-and-so use this? How would, you know, you can come up with so many use cases and you can just keep going on those things. And some of those won't be great. Some of them will, but just that, just the moment we are in today, like if you just try to understand the, the implications of the thing that just happened, though, just yeah. that is really big. And we're on this crazy curve, right? There's going to be something even crazier in a year. I guarantee it. Like, I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> and this is, this is the thing. I mean, you, I'm sure you've seen all the doomerism stuff that goes on, oh, you sure. know, the sure, people have sure. been in the space for a long time. So here's the thing. And it's a lot of the doomerism, it comes from people who were pretty skeptical about AI. Like some of the most famous people who have gotten doomerish recently, they were not long ago in the camp of like, yeah, this isn't going to amount to much or this is going to happen, but it's going to take 50 years. Doomerish right? meaning that it's going to be a net negative impact to humanity? Yeah, we're all going to die. Okay, okay gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's no, sure. I mean, those people, they're a very small number of people, but they get a lot of ink. Because the newspapers, they love those guys. <laughs> right? The TV <laughs> channels, they love those guys. Um, and, you know, they get retweeted a lot. So you see them on yeah. Twitter, right? They're it, like a lot of social media and media phenomena. They're, they're these, this edge phenomena that gets blown way out of proportion because they get a lot of attention, right? Yeah. But very significant, very thoughtful people who've been in the field for a really long time have started saying things where that basically boils it down to, I'm afraid, like this is scaring me. And I'm thinking that maybe we need to do, so. I mean, Elon, right. For a long time mm -hmm. ago was in the, you know, this, like this trend scares me. And I would like us, the world, us to be doing something to try to make sure, you know, it stays under control because if you've been in a world that, and this is not Elon, but this is like the, you know, other people, um, uh, that have sort of recently sort of flipped on this stuff of going from the, yeah, that's not going to happen to holy cow, like, mm -hmm. you know, regulate us kind of, uh, uh, world, you know, they, they've gone through this emotional shock of it set in like how fast this stuff is happening. And it's so hard to predict where it's going because yeah. like there's so many things happening at the same time in different directions and they all interact with one another. So, you know, we, uh, it's, it's not difficult to be frightened by what is going on. If you're in the space, yeah. especially if you've been skeptical, even the optimist people like me who like, we knew this day was coming and we were just waiting. Right? <laughs> I mean, there are people who are in that space too, no shortage of them. Mm -hmm. Right. Sure. Um, uh, are, you know, it's kind of overwhelming. Like it, I was in a very strange state of mind for three weeks after chat GBT came around, which, which is mm -hmm. this kind of sort of, can't believe it's real kind of thing. Uh, it's weird. There's kind of, it's kind of gleeful. Hey, it's finally happened. And there's this mm. other part that's like, oh shit, it's finally happened. Right? <laughs> and they're both happening. They're both going on in, in, at, at the same time. But the, yeah. when you have a sense that there's this big thing happening and you're not in control and you don't know where it's going, it's kind of scary. And so sure. 
for people who live in a world where they think everything's under control, they think it's a yeah. change. I mean, my opinion is like nothing's in control, right? I agree anyway, with that. And yeah. like control is an illusion. And yeah. uh, not just because life is stochastic, not because there's just because there's a lot of randomness in life, but because every individual and every significant institution is just really small compared to the world as a whole. Like the world has momentum, things happen in the world and we're along for the ride. You know, that, that, that's the reality of most stuff. And we just get a sense that, that we have control. Well, if you're in a field and you think things are moving pretty slow, it's a lot easier to maintain the sense that, that things are under, like there are adults doing adult right. things and making sure it's all going to turn out okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's, it's not, you know, <laughs> I mean, the reality is like, if you, yeah. you, you, if you ever get in the room, this is what I've heard, you know, you get in the rooms, the halls of power, and you sit down with these people and you pretty quickly figure out, yeah, they don't know what's going on either. Yeah, that was, I mean, <laughs> We're just I'll here. tell you, man, I mean, I can speak from experience at what, why, uh, my, my previous, previous employer. So this was before Tesla, amazing company, amazing mentorships. But one, one of the, one of the most amazing opportunities I got was being in, in, uh, you know, in the executive rooms multiple times a quarter talking strategy and talking about where the where the company should go. And as all these folks that, you know, to this day, I still respect, but I, you know, these are all blah, executive officer, blah, executive officer, vice president of blind. This is in a very small sort of, uh, you know, pocket of, of uh, uh, distribution, the total distribution network in the States. It's just a company that, that did really great in, in what they did. But I was like, wow, these people must be the most brilliant they know they have all the answers and then i the literally the first time i sat down and i'm like like looking at the back and forth i'm like how like what's going on like i thought there was a lot of um unexpected behavior where i'm like wow so it, it maybe maybe they're just making it up as they go they're trying their best and if it works out it works out if it doesn't it doesn't and that was like like my profound sort of thing that went off in my head. I'm like, I wonder where else this happens. And then the more I talk to people, it's like, oh, this is like, this is just human beings. <laughs> this is, yeah. and, and the ones where uh, by happenstance, like maybe I think this is why Tesla or SpaceX is so successful. By happenstance, they have the right collection of people in that room to actually be much better than average, not perfect, but much better than average. And that's why they can create such a huge distance between themselves and their closest competitors. And so one would think that in the space of AI and AGI long term, the, the same dynamic probably will exist. But I'm curious how AI will actually help make better decisions as we go on, on the path towards whatever that singularity is, you know, it's just, it's just fascinating to think about. It's absolutely fascinating to think about. Um, yeah, yeah. this yeah. is the best time ever to be alive right now. It this definitely really feels cool. like it. It definitely feels like it. Let me, let me shift gears to, uh, to Tesla a little bit, because I do want to pick your brain on a few things. And then if you're okay with it, we'll do a Q and a, I know people have been posting questions. You cool with that? Uh, we'll bring up some questions towards the end. Sure. Yeah, perfect. Okay. So with Tesla, um, Elon Musk made a comment and he said that Tesla has the, the, so if they were to solve something along these lines, I hope I'm getting this somewhat correct and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if you heard this, but he said, if Tesla <laughs> were to solve the GPT problem, would be able to solve it relatively quickly. But if the GPT companies were going to try to solve the vision problem, it, they would be like, forget it. There's no way they would be able to do it, which means that which kind of showcases how far ahead Tesla is from from that perspective. So try to like compare, 
I don't know, the complexity and how much more compute power they have. I don't know how to think about that. So, so can you help me uh, sort of frame that in my head in a way that's digestible? Like, give me, give me a little yeah, bit of help. That's a less of a profound, I mean, it's an interesting comment and I can rephrase it for you slightly. So what mm -hmm. Elon basically said was he was, you know, he was, he's in an interview and he gets, he gets asked a question about, you know, Tesla's status relative to open AI, you know, on, on that kind of thing. And he responds with this observation, which I totally agree with. And it's true. And I would be willing to bet people at open AI would agree with it too, which was, well, if the Tesla FSD team and the open AI team had to switch jobs suddenly, how mm -hmm. long would it take the open, the Tesla team to do what open AI has done? And how long would it take the open AI team to do what Tesla has done so far? And his observation is we would catch them like we would be able to do what they're doing in much less time than they would be able to do what we have done. And that is true. That is mm. like in my quote, in my mind, there's there's and I think anybody who's honest and knows much about the two topics would agree. The main reason for that is because there are um, a lot of what open a a lot of the results, like a lot of what open AI did, like the world knows how to do it. Like lots of people aside from OpenAI make these models. They're not quite as good as OpenAI's. They're definitely ahead. But, but the core code and the techniques are simple. It's taken a long time to figure out what those techniques are, but now everybody knows them. Not just uh, OpenAI, they have a few secrets that, that people don't know, but the overwhelming majority of the really important stuff is public and everybody knows it, right? Whereas, <laughs> You know, the the FSD problem, it's not we wrote this 300 lines of code and that's driving your car. It's like many, many, many systems and they interact in really complicated ways. And these are all the result of all different kinds of painful lessons and stuff. They, that is the path to getting here has required all kinds of stuff, not the least of which is a million cars out there driving on the road, doing mm. this stuff, testing it for you, doing the feedback. Got so it. like, you know, if OpenAI wanted to do what Tesla's done, well, first... They got to start a car company because they need a million cars. Right? <laughs> and then, you know, they have to they have to they have to take on this very messy, complicated problem, because in a lot of ways, the language problem, it's kind of pure. It's kind of clean. We're just got tons of, of, of language. We're going to feed it into a relatively simple algorithm, like the underlying algorithm for transformers. Dead simple. It's really easy. Like the pseudocode is like a page or something like that. It's really small. Um, and then, then there's just the question of like buying enough computers, scaling up, figuring out how to get them to all work together, figuring out lots of little dirty tricks associated with getting it to run well and that kind of stuff. And then evaluating like there's a bunch of knobs that you turn to like sort of figure out what that is, but not just open AI, but the whole world's been working on this and lots of other people have contributed to it, which is why Facebook they make tons of their own models and they don't need open AI at all. And Google, they make tons of their own models. And these other entities, they're arguably as good. And even though they're working totally independently, they're all working from the same public knowledge. They all have a little bit of secret sauce. They all have these resources. So if Tesla decided to do that, well, they can draw from the public well, go yeah. out there, buy a bunch of computers. I mean, they've, they've already got a bunch of computers, right? And start doing that thing. So Tesla could pretty quickly build a, uh, you know, a chat GBT kind of thing where quickly is not three weeks quickly is like, you know, two years or something like mm -hmm. that to yeah. like get up to scale and do that kind of stuff. Um, they're open AI. If they tried to do FSD, that's five, six, seven years, maybe something. Mm. So that's, 
you know, it's a way of thinking of, of contrasting these two efforts. Like FSD is a really, really different kind of problem than ChatGPT is. And it requires a, a, a whole different set of infrastructure, some of which is very complicated, a lot of very specialized skills and tons and tons of experience and all these little nuanced things. And, and ChatGPT, you know, it's, it, I mean, I don't want to trivialize it. It's not, you know, it's, a, it's, it's quite an accomplishment, but, uh, but it doesn't have the messy variety of critical things that go into FSD. And those things, they just take time to do, right? I see. Okay. <clears throat> so, so that's, that's helpful to conceptualize. I think, so, so I have another question for you related to that. So when, so specifically on FSD, so when Elon says we're moving towards everything neural nets, so like everything is going to be handled by the machine learning system, or, or it's, it's going to, it's not, it, the way I think about that is that it's not going to be a line of code that a human wrote for it to make a decision, like an if then else, some sort of statement, it's like if this, then do this, else do this, and then you nest them and whatever, however they're writing that, but it's, um, uh, a machine learning system or, or the, uh, an AI has figured out the best way to handle that situation by throwing it, uh, by you throwing a data through pictures and, and video and whatever else, right? So, and, and what I've noticed is that as, you know, and then I'm trying to conceptualize why this happens. So as new systems come out and more and more of the system is moving to that neural uh, neural net handling it versus, I guess, uh, human code, what, what I notice is, uh, degradation in certain things. So like 11.4, no, 11.4.2, uh, which I just got three today, which I'm going to test later today. Uh, the one thing I noticed is it, in an area where they didn't have a problem, which was in, in certain uh, two lane, uh, you know, 65 mile an hour speed limit, we have turning lanes on the left and the right. And then it would often misjudge them as actual, uh, like, you know, just a lane, but it was actually a turning lane. And that started happening in 11.4.2 and I wasn't having that problem with 4.1 or whatever the, the version was before that. I think it was just 11.4. Um, so, so is that a function of them yanking out the human code and then the neural net just hasn't figured out exactly how to handle that and those glitches is just the, the neural net not having enough data from the road to actually say, hey, I shouldn't have been in this lane. And them yanking the human code is actually showing that weakness. Is that a good way of thinking about it? Because I'm trying to conceptualize in my head, like, how did the, how does this happen? Because I would think if the neural net's taken over, then everything's better. But that's not usually the case, right? That can't be the case if there's degradation. There's probably something the human wrote that handled that specific corner case. Help me help me understand that a little bit better. Yeah. So the thing you just described, it does happen. I don't think it's okay. happening in the particular problem that you just described, but it definitely happens. Um, the, the, the arc of this thing, right, is that when they started out, they had very little neural networks doing very simple stuff. And they had a lot of heuristic code, like stuff written by human beings to basically take the output of those neural networks and turn that in and, and uh, you know, you know, go through a process where you figure out how to press the brakes, accelerate, or turn the wheel, right? And you start out, and you know, Andre did a couple of talks on this early and then later on the thing where he talked about how the neural network, you know, it was just basically as it becomes, it, eat, it gradually eats the stack. So, and that's a way you can think about it. I, I don't like that exactly because it kind of implies that what's happening is the neural network is replacing like these heuristic functions with like equivalent things, like the same thing is going in. 
Mm. A better way to think about it, in my opinion, is that you need, if, if, you, if the output of the neural network is very simple and not very reliable, then you need a lot of code to clean it up and turn it into things that can safely drive a car, right? And as the neural network gets better, well, one of the things that happens is it gets bigger, right? But the other thing is it's providing more useful outputs that are easier to interpret and more reliable. So you need less and less code to manage that and turn it into a safe driving experience. And of course, the end game of that is eventually you have something where you, you need essentially zero uh, code in the path right? Where, you know, you go from the camera inputs and it's neural network all the way up to the point where it turns the steering wheel, right? Now that doesn't mean there's no heuristic code. In fact, the neural network itself, like all the matrix multiplies, those are implemented in heuristic code, right? Okay. I mean, so yeah, the, sure. the thing the neural network is doing is it's doing this huge statistical analysis of stuff that's going, and you could call it yeah. statistical in order yeah. to determine like what the best course of action is. Um, so, you know, there's lots of human written code in there, but the thing is, there's not any human written code, which is like, if pedestrians stop, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm, that line mm -hmm. isn't in there anymore. A neural network at some point is, is recognizing the pedestrian, therefore not go thing and doesn't hit the gas when the pedestrian is present. Like it, it shifts to that kind of mode. So this is not like a stack of code and they're just replacing it with all the functions being the same. As a neural network gets better, the nature of the heuristic code that sits on top of it and that manages it, that changes. And the whole system improves, more and more functions come in. It's like, there are things you just can't do with heuristic code. And when the neural network starts taking over a new function, all of a sudden there are things the system could do. They're not heuristic things, right? There, it's a new feature the neural network is now giving you, right? And because you've got this new feature, maybe there's some heuristic code you had before that you don't need anymore, right? Mm. And sometimes in the bigger rewrites, what you get is a thing where the nature of the output from the neural network, now the, the output from the neural network, I haven't looked at the neural networks in a long time. Like I used to look at them when they were easier to read, right? And it, sure. the last time I looked at them, there were like thousands of distinct things thousands <laughs> of distinct things coming out of the neural network wow. that the heuristic code would use to make decisions. So it's no yeah. small space of things. And some of those things are this giant brick of like, you know, here's a map of this 3D space and all the objects and said, that's one thing, right? <laughs> that's not thousands. So like there was a lot of stuff coming out and it took a lot of code to digest this, turn it into useful actions, figure out if it's reliable and all this kind of stuff that's going on. And as the neural network goes up and up, in a sense, the stuff that comes out is simple. And the ultimate simple is like, turn the wheel right. <laughs> you know, that's when it mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. kind of condenses down uh, to the end. So, so it's this process. And uh, instead, thinking of you know these the major revisions they're not trivial tweaks to the system they're substantial architectural changes where things that were done in the previous version they're still being done but they're being done in a really different way and additionally there's new stuff we're doing that we weren't doing before and the first time it goes in the car you don't know how well it works right because you've tested it on 100 employee cars for a couple of months or something like that and then you turn it right. into the fleet and real people use it and now they're using it in Des Moines and uh, and Detroit, whereas before it was just like awesome in California and you find yeah. all these ways it didn't work. So you quickly go through this iteration of like, first you slap on guardrails so nobody gets hurt, right? And then you try to figure out 
um, you know, what do we do to make it better? What do we do to fix it? Can we fix the problem in this version by changing the heuristic code a little bit? Because we're not changing the neural networks now. We're just changing the heuristic code. Sometimes uh, you're like, well, we could add some more training data and we'll put that in the pipe. And three, three revisions from now, when a new neural network comes in, we'll get the fix or whatever. And in the meantime, we need the Band-Aid, right? Yeah. Okay, so the problem that you were just talking about, like I see this all the time. It's it's the biggest pet peeve I've had in the in the system for quite a while. So um, I think that what we've got happening here is the neural network. It used to be this thing where you know the nav system is independent. The thing that decides what the route is, it's like yeah. Google Maps. You know, it just basically takes a map, it runs this A star algorithm or whatever, and it creates the lowest energy cost pathway through this matrix of roads to figure out where you're going, given the weights and, and that kind of stuff. And it has a map of interconnectivity of all the road segments that it navigates, right? Now the car drives, right? And you get to intersections where the car looks at the intersection and it doesn't see the connectivity that's in the map, mm. right? It has to make a difference. In fact, I was just speaking to my brother-in-law. We were just talking about this example that he's got where, you know, you, you come to this intersection and there's a freeway, you know, it's a, it's a wide intersection. Like there's four lanes going this way. And then the ramp to the freeway is on the other side. Well, technically the ramp connects to the intersection. So you could drive all the way through the intersection and then turn right and go on the ramp. And that's what all the humans do. They come right. to the light. They want to get on the freeway. They drive all the way through the intersection and they hit the ramp. And in fact, the, 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 you know, the navigation data, it shows that freeway connected to this big open space of this yeah. ramp, right? So, but the car gets to that. And the first thing it's got to do is do its turn. It knows it's turning right. So it turns right. So now it's gone through the intersection, but the connectivity ramp, the connectivity map says the ramp connects to the intersection, but it doesn't connect to the road after the intersection. Now, as a human being, you're like, that ramp is 500 feet long. I got plenty of time yeah. to move over there and get on it, right? And that's where the route goes because that's how the nav routed it, right? But the car can't do it. Because it because mm. the way it's written is it has to do the right turn and then it has to go to the ramp. And once you do the right turn, you can't go to the ramp because that's the way the map is built. Oh, right. Oh wow. Okay, so okay. there's all kinds of things like this. And it happens at this intersection because it's just kind of a weird intersection, right? Okay, so the fix for this in the long run is to get the system to see the to see the roads more the way people do. We see them as continuous. Like you, you know, they've got this language of lanes thing that they use in intersections, which is great. It allows the car to come to an intersection, to look at the intersection and to validate that its understanding of the intersection makes sense. And that mm. is really, really useful. But one of the things they do is they break the intersection into decision points. You drive to this lane and now you can go right or now you can go straight. And if you go straight, well, now you can go right here or go straight or change lanes. You know, this is this tree of stuff, mm. but it's got these discrete points. And in between the point, you can drive to the next decision point and make a decision, but you can't do anything in the middle. That's not the way humans see it. To a human, it's continuous. Like every point right. along there, you could decide to turn. Right. So they have right. to simplify it in order to make it work inside the scheme that they have, because they don't need, they don't want the sentences in their language of lanes to all be 10,000 words long. Right. They want them to be like 10 words because it trains better and you get better results, but then it breaks in these situations where the discrete decision points, they don't map onto a human's common sense understanding of what you can mm. do in a situation. Okay. In the example that you're talking about, we, we've got this thing where, you know, the map data says this road has two lanes and then you get to the intersection and it's like, 
the leftmost lane turns and the rightmost, the leftmost lane is a dedicated turning lane, right? And so the car is driving along and its perception is I'm in the leftmost lane. It hasn't gotten to the intersection yet, right? But the mm. map is saying, and the software in the thing, there's this heuristic thing that basically says, if you're in a turning lane, as you approach an intersection, get out of that lane because you need to go straight, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. so the map tells the car. Uh, so the car looks at it, it's, it's like, it's a two lane road, I'm in the leftmost lane. And the map data says the leftmost lane at the intersection, it turns left, <laughs> right? It's a dedicated uh, turning lane and you must turn. So the car, it hasn't gotten to the intersection. It's like, I better move to the right. So I'm not in the turning lane before I get there. Uh, so as a human, you're like, what is going on, right? And the mismatch is that the road is two lanes, but it's four lanes or three lanes when you get to the intersection. Mm -hmm. And so where do you make that decision? Okay, if the perception system in the car is good enough that it can see that that lane that's yeah. going to turn it's a turning lane that doesn't exist yet and will exist and i don't have to get out of this lane because i won't be in that lane when i get to the intersection mm. right mm. i get this problem here because i there's this road i used to go to the grocery store and it's got dedicated turning lanes to the right <laughs> and the car just like <laughs> yeah know, yeah like just like trying yeah, exactly. to avoid the dedicated turning lane <laughs> yeah. thing. but so, they'll fix it right that so the right fix so there's a heuristic that they could do they could come in here and they could say oh, this is dumb and it's annoying all our customers and that kind of stuff. So we're going to put some code in here to, to, to like look at the map data and basically figure out when this situation is coming along and suppress the lane change in that situation. And that now what, what would happen in that case is that like 95% of the time that would work great and the, it wouldn't do the lane change. And 1% of the time it would break. And the reason it would break is because the world is so complicated that heuristics don't work. Right, they mostly right. work but they never perfectly work. The real yeah. fix is the system being able to perceive the full connectivity of the thing in a more continuous way and farther away from the car than it can right now. So at the end of the day, the planning and perception systems, once they get good enough, this problem just disappears. Right. You don't need that. So in the short run, they might write some code to band-aid it, to make it so it's not pissing people off, right? Yeah. And then if they do that, then the next version comes along and they can just strip that code out, mm. right? Um, but the thing is that it, it'll work great to the extent that that the perception system is really good when they when they push it out. There's always this stuff where, you know, you expand the perception and planning capability of the system and it's great. It solves a whole lot of problems that you had before, but it introduces two or three new ones that you didn't expect. So you get it right. out there, you push it in the fleet, people find it. And then they've got another thing. Okay, so how do we fix this one? <laughs> right? March and that's nines. what you do over and over and over again. Yeah. They, just, they just turn the crank. So version 12, what Elon was talking about is that happens to be this milestone where the neural network finally makes it all the way through. Mm. Like right now, they still have layers of heuristics that the, that the path of information from the cameras to where it gets to the steering wheel has to go through some layers that are just purely heuristic, they're purely rules. So at some point, it'll be able to get all the way there just going through neural networks and you'll have relatively simple representations. That doesn't mean it's done at that point because at that point, the neural network, it'll have a set of features. Like for instance, you could get to that point and it could still not have parking lots, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. there's stuff like, actually smart summon that might not, I'm not saying it won't be in the system, but it's just an example of a feature that might, that you could get all the way to having the neural network go the whole way, but not have trained the neural network to do this particular thing that it needs to do eventually. So they're not done when they get there, but it is a really important milestone. And it does eliminate a whole lot of like categories of problems they've had up until now. So it'll, it'll definitely be something to celebrate when we get there.
Gotcha. And so that and so that V12 milestone. So so would perception also be part of uh, that thing that would have to work on once they get there of like judging the road, how a human sees it? Or do you, would you view that as it's inclu- it's included in that V12 because the neural nets are now making the decisions? How do you think about that specific like the perception it's not problem? Necessarily being part of that? Included. So it's it's yeah. like the parking lot thing. Okay. It, it I mean, you could include it and maybe they will. Uh, yeah, it. The, the thing is, all of these, right, the, this, the way the system is built right now, it's actually a lot of neural networks. I mean, we tend to think of it as one. And it, right. neural networks are kind of this funny thing. They're like Lego blocks, right? I mean, on some scale, they're individual Lego blocks. But on another scale, it's like a Lego thing, you know, that just yeah. has a whole bunch of blocks. Because, you know, the neural networks, they all have lots of inputs, lots of outputs. And if all the inputs and outputs go to other neural networks, then the computation of the neural network itself is indistinguishable from it just being a single neural network, right? Mm. So, mm. but but uh, the way that the system had, had been built is, I'm sure, still being built, is that they have a lot of blocks that they kind of take out and they train because for some, for various reasons, or they might train it in situ by giving it you know, they basically will, in the training of the neural network, then this one block, they know it'll work better if they give it this piece of information that it doesn't have when it's in the car. We're just going to use this for training, right? So you've got all of this sort of interconnectivity and these boundaries that are built into the network that are used to give the team finer control of how it trains up and how it behaves when it's trained and that kind of stuff that aren't necessarily present in the vehicle when when it gets there. So you've, so there's a lot of neural networks that are kind of these modular functions that they've stuck in, like the language of lanes. They didn't train that into the existing thing. They took a neural network, right? They built a neural network to do the language of lanes part, and then they slotted it into the existing neural networks, like between mm. a couple of other layers in order to do a thing that used to have some heuristic code in it for making the decision, right? Mm. So, you know, it's still this, the neural network is always and at all times composed of lots of sort of isolable, at least from a human standpoint, they're isolated functions that you could add or subtract. They might work or they might not. When they first get to the point where they can go all the way from the input to the output without going through heuristic code, that doesn't necessarily mean that every conceivable block has been added at that point. Gotcha. It might be okay. or it might not be. That's super helpful to, to and, wrap my and head around. And the thing around. is, because, yeah. because the connectivity is so complicated, like externally, and because I myself, and as far as I know, nobody outside the company actually knows what the actual connectivity map of all these things is. If you ask mm. an outside expert, well, what would happen if we change this thing? The reality yeah. is like, I don't know what it's plugged into and I don't know what plugs into it exactly. So I can't mm. foresee all the consequences of making a particular change. I can just speculate. Gotcha. Okay, that's helpful. And then I, I want to hit one more topic, and then we'll do some Q and A. So if you're in the comments and you'd like to ask a question, make sure you write question before your question, so that it's easier for producer wife to bring it up. So uh, one of the comments that Elon Musk recently made was that it looks like the speed of the the speed of uh, change, the speed of development of full self driving seems to be speeding up. So it's going exponential in a sense. Um, and so, so when I think about that, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, what are the things that's allowing Tesla to do that? Tell me if I'm thinking about this correctly. So I'm guessing single stack, going single stack probably helped them um, 
sort of make changes or develop that system a little bit quicker because they're not dealing with two disparate systems and how they interplay with each other. They actually have one system now. So you tell me if that was big or not. And then how much data they're getting from their fleet as the fleet grows exponentially. Um, that could be one. And then the compute power. I don't know if Dojo going, is, is going online. That could be another huge one. And then I would also love to hear uh, how big of a deal. So once they go V12 and everything up and down, you know, through the whole system, it's neural nets. How much would that uh, also increase their ability to sort of iterate? So kind of like, can you rank order those four for me? So uh, going single stack, the amount of data they're getting from an exponentially growing fleet, Dojo coming online, and then V12, everything. Like which one of those four uh, is going to allow them to move the quickest? You know, which one's the most fundamental change to how they're developing it's, the system. I would say there there aren't like big things that dominate being okay. able to go faster. Every single so one of the kind things of play you, together. Yeah, yeah, they're synergistic. It's the Lollapalooza effect uh, where mm. um, you know that you you know something that makes you one percent faster combined with something else that makes you one percent faster combines with something else. You know, you get ten of those, mm. and now you're ten percent. You're actually more than ten. You're like eleven percent faster because they compound, right? Mm -hmm. um, Going single stack, the big advantage of going single stack is now there's all this stuff you don't have to maintain anymore. So all those guys that were doing that, now they're working on the main thing. So like you've increased your manpower and you've decreased the problems, you know, that you have to worry about. Um, having, having more data, more cars, like that definitely helps. The more data you have, the faster you get the data you need to add any new feature, to resolve any particular problem. So that short, you know, the bigger the fleet gets, the shorter the time between the engineers say, I need this and I and they have it, right? And from a data standpoint, Dojo, same thing, right? Or, you know, or, you know, even X Dojo, they're expanding. Uh, Elon said at the beginning of this year that their data center is growing 10X in 2023 and another 10X. So between the beginning of 2022 and the end of 2024, they're going 100X on their data center, right? Damn. So even X Dojo, they're they're putting a lot more compute in and that compute is immediately useful because every so much of the stuff they do is compute limited right it, compute limited in the sense that you know an engineer they've got this thing you know they made this change and they want to test it they push it into the test cluster the test cluster back tests it on 50,000 things now if that takes a week that engineer's got to wait a week before he perceives that feature if it takes three days now he's only got to wait three days so that yeah. That's also faster, yeah, right? Sure yeah. um, some some part of it is going to be the system just getting cleaner and simpler, uh, and them understanding better what they're doing. The other thing is the organization matures too, right? Like their internal organizational structure improves. They figure out what works and what doesn't work. They redirect resources to places that need more resources from from places where they have relatively excess resources. So. All, and all of these things are synergistic. Incidentally, it's always been exponential. It's just that the exponent increases. There's, it's, mm. there's one thing about being, you know, at Y to the 1.5 and it's in Y to the 1.6 is faster. <laughs> and the thing about yeah. raising the exponent on an exponential process, 0 0.6, 0 0.7, 0 0.8, is like every single little increment is a really big difference in, yeah. in, the, in the pace of change. But it's continuous, right? It didn't, there wasn't a time when it was linear you know, and then it became exponential. It's always been exponential. Just like mm -hmm. I was, was had this com conversation with somebody the other day. GDP is exponential, right? Interest rates are exponential. Yeah, <laughs> they don't yeah, feel yeah. it because yeah. it's slow compared to our perception. And FSD is definitely exponential. 
it's been exponential for a really long time. It's just that, you know, it changes on the, the perceptible changes to a user happen on the scale of months and years. And we habituate on days and weeks. So we, even though it's there, you don't see it unless you're it, like, if you're a YouTuber and you go back and look at like your, you know, your FSD videos from two years ago, you're like, wow, uh, boy, yeah, really yeah. <laughs> yeah. but there's never a day when you, I mean, there's rarely days when you, every yeah. once in a while they, sh they ship these, these discontinuously amazing, you know, updates. And yeah. they always have a lot of bugs in them too, right? But, yeah, of course, of course. But you're just like, yeah. wow, this really basic behavior just got a lot better, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Dude, thank you so much for the insight. You've given us super, super helpful for me to uh, really think about this AI stuff going forward. Thank you for shedding some light on the FSD stuff as well. I could ask you so many more questions, but I want to be respectful of your time. And I definitely want to get uh, some questions in from the audience. To so everybody who's uh, sent in questions, especially Super Chats, thank you all so much for supporting the channel. The beer fund grows. So next time I see James, I'm going to have to get him nice and drunk on IPAs. How about that? <laughs> all right. Let's go ahead and uh, pull up the first question from Producer Wife. Producer Wife, go ahead and pull them up. Uh, from Bimmer Geezer, $25. Uh, James, the greatest guest on YouTube. Chats. There you go, <laughs> Thank man. You. Very kind. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, we'll make sure to put that twenty-five to good use. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much. Five bucks. You're very uh, James Dama. You're very bullish on the future of LLMs, uh, large language models. Is Tesla your best bet for the largest beneficiary of these predicted improvements? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, um, so Tesla, like as we we were talking about the you know language of lanes thing. That in a sense, that's. Tesla using some technology that comes out of the LLM, you know, transformer space. It's not an LLM. The, the, the underlying technology is really similar. So they do benefit from that. Most of the FSD doesn't benefit directly from LLMs. Uh, does Tesla, will Tesla benefit from the existence of LLMs in the world and LLMs happening? Yeah, sure they will. They're, you know, uh, but in a lot of ways, te Tesla benefits in a similar way to the rest of the world, right? Like these things, they just leverage your people in a really significant way. LLMs are less useful for the underlying problems of FSD, which is Tesla's biggest sort of AI related lever today. Now they can use LLMs in other aspects of their business, um, but it's not, and it's not a, a, like a drop in huge benefit for them in the same way that it is for say Google, uh, like, you know, because Google's world is virtual, it's textual and that kind of stuff. Or if you're a company that has, you know, if you have a website and tons of users and you have a problem like, you know, finding spam, like LLMs, they, they, they're like a direct and immediate solution to a big problem that you have. Longer term LLMs have, they're going to end up having a lot of other, uh, a lot of other uh, impacts and LLMs, they're going to push everything else forward too. Like a lot of the stuff we learn in LLMs gives us insight into everything else that we do. So a lot of the, so in, in a lot of indirect ways, Tesla really does benefit, but I wouldn't say that they're the obvious beneficiary of, uh, of the advancement of LLMs at this point. That said, I feel like Tesla is one of the, in my mind, in my opinion, they're one of the more straightforward and significant beneficiaries of the advance in neural network tech. Uh, 
and explaining that is a little bit more com uh, a little bit more complicated but uh, it has to do with the nature of tesla as an invest as an investment which is that they have this core like essentially the ai stuff is this huge lever for tesla which uh, is essentially a free call option because in my opinion, Tesla doesn't get valued as, as a tech company or as an AI company. They get, they get, they're getting valued as, uh, as a car company, which is an up and comer right now. Like it's growing really fast. It's going to take, like I feel like Wall Street is no longer assuming that, uh, that Tesla is going to be an also ran, you know, five years from now. Like they see Tesla having a significant impact. They don't see Tesla like having, you know, a fleet of robo taxis uh, that, you know, out there uh, doing transportation as a service. And the reason I can say they don't do that is because, well, if they do think that they can't do math <laughs> because <laughs> the number is much, much bigger than the stock price implies right now. If that wants no that financial advice. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I wouldn't say that they're an obvious direct beneficiary of LLMs, but they will benefit and they will benefit disproportionately as an investment, as these technologies roll out because of the because of the nature of their business. They are actually quite AI heavy company, like maybe one of the most AI heavy companies. Awesome. Thank you so much, James, for that awesome uh, answer. Ryan, thank you so much for the super chat. Let's do the next question. And yes, I timed it perfectly. Christopher, thank you so much. Another $10 super chat. Hey, Farzad, I'm the duck rice farmer from Investor Day. I remember you, man. We met at Clive, I'm pretty sure on the bottom on the bottom floor. How you doing, brother? I'm wondering your thoughts on FSD adoption only needing to hit a minimum saturation point before we see exponential gains for overall road safety. Yeah, I'm so let me I'm wondering your thoughts on FSD adoption only needing to hit a minimum saturation point before we see exponential gains for overall road safety. I mean, the, the way I think about it, and James, help me think about this, uh, too. And if you have any thoughts here, I think the 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 question of the full self-driving system being better than a human it's, i feel like that that is like not even a question that we have to doubt because it seems like the trajectory is very much going there and in some ways if i think about how the system behaves today with my supervision and data has you know tesla has data back in the sub is that it's far safer i mean it does it 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 doesn't really you know, it does do stupid things, but in general, when you're thinking about where people do stupid things, the system does a lot less stupid things in those situations, which I think is why overall it's safer than a human with supervision. So I'm I'm wondering, you know, the way I'm thinking about its adoption and sort of hitting that critical uh, point is that at some point, the safety of the system is going to be so much safer than a human that regulators are going to have no other option but to adopt the technology because of how many lives it's going to save. I think it's very hard for the regulators to say, hey, there's 30,000 people dying in the United States every year from car accidents, and that's okay. Like, even though this thing might get us down to 10,000, we should wait until it, get us down, it gets us down to 10. I don't see that happening. And I think any sort of perceived uh, improvement on the safety past that point um, I think it's going to be less important than the comfort and how confident people feel in that system because of how comfortable it is to ride in it. How do you think about that uh, sort of question and, and uh, sort of my answer? So the overall question of like how much FSD does it take to make a difference or the sure. question of like how good does FSD have to be before regulators feel compelled to, uh, I don't know, it's like regulators, they can approve it or disapprove it. I, I it's... Like, I do think we get to a point at, at some point where 
you know, people are petitioning Congress to get all the dangerous human drivers off the road. Right. And that's where you get like, it's mandated. People have to, I don't know at what point that happens, not for a while yet, considering the kind of environment that we're in right now. Um, There is an interesting thing about injecting self-driving cars or, you know, drivers with certain behaviors into a stream of traffic on the first topic. Like, at what point does FSD start changing the dynamics of driving on the highways? Like it's been known for a long time in the way in traffic flow studies that a relatively small number of drivers that deviate from the behavior of the pack can change the the dynamic of the entire pack. And you like one of the ways you can you can demonstrate this in a really horrible way, which has been done a couple of times, is you have a you have a fast but smooth flowing, highly congested highway, and you inject one person driving really badly, and now you get a traffic jam, right? Because you've just crossed the critical threshold of laminar flow for this yeah, thing, yeah. right? And it, and it comes to all. And the other thing can happen too, where, you know, you have a lot of sort of variation. You, I mean, there's a certain amount of turbulence in traffic that you get. And the turbulence contributes to the possibility of getting a jam up. And, and turbulence also contributes to accidents and that kind of stuff, right? And one of the things about self-driving cars is they drive in a much more steady and predictable way than people do, mm. which is not to say all people, but you've got some subset of people who, you know, they're, who are not helping the situation. Texas, baby. Right? There's always, an out, there's always outliers, right? And you have some distribution of velocities and number of lane changes and that kind of stuff. The and entire state of Texas the is of an outlier. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so the thing is, uh, I don't know what the number is, but it's a it's a, an amazingly small number fraction of the overall vehicles that have to just become very consistent and predictable before the density of the traffic at laminar flow as a, can get much much higher. So, like there's there's this interesting sort of flow thing that happens where if you get if you have a a certain concentration, which might be 10% or it might be 3% or something like that, of very consistent drivers in a mix, the whole group becomes much more consistent mm. uh, overall. So uh, it, like, it'll be interesting to see what the dynamics are and if anybody does any studies on those. But I do, I do actually think that, that uh, FSD, it's going to start having that kind of impact before it has the impact of like it's saving everybody's life because everybody's driving on it, right? Uh, it, it, yeah. it, it could have this weird knock on effect where it changes. Like I live in LA and LA, you know, the freeways are nuts in morning rush yeah, hour. Yeah. People drive really fast and they're three feet apart. Right. And there's, you know, the fast lane is the asshole parade. You, know? <laughs> you just, you get these buses of like people who are just, they're really in a hurry to get going. Yeah. So there it's, it's kind of this showcase of irrational behavior, which is not safe. And the thing right. is, it doesn't change. You don't have to inject a lot, very many constraints into the flow of that traffic before people give up on the irrational behavior. And they just like, you know, follow the flow of traffic and get there when everybody else gets there kind of thing. Yeah. And that is, a, that's a safer environment to be in. Yeah. It, it, it's going to be so fascinating to see if there is, if there's a critical mass of Teslas on the road on FSD that their behavior would indirectly impact like it would dire- almost directly impact everyone else's behavior because of how safe they're driving and that creates a just overall safer environment so just by them existing on the road it could have a positive effect that that would be mind-blowing to see and I would love to see if there's any data around that one if if and when that happens all right let's do a let's do a few more uh, we want to be respectful of James's time here he's allocated two hours we'll make sure not to go over that Ryan uh, question Elon said that Waymo's self-driving tech won't scale 
Can you elaborate on that and whether you agree or not? So this is sort of the LIDAR multi-sensor system, so on and so forth. Uh, any any insight you can give us? It's, I mean, Waymo will change their system to, as they scale out, they will change their system to make it more scalable. The way that they do things now, yeah, I, I do generally disagree. To say it doesn't scale is like going a little bit too far. It doesn't scale as easily. And that's certainly true. The amount of work that you, that Waymo needs to do in a certain area in order to get their fleet to operate is much higher than, than the system that Tesla aspirationally is creating would do. Like Tesla aspirationally is trying to build a system that's functionally equivalent to a human being in terms of its driving. So it doesn't need, like even if it doesn't have a map, it doesn't need a cellular connection. If something unexpected happens on the road, a tree falls down, there's construction or something like that, it, re, it, it, move, you know, it responds in the way a human being does with a full sort of you know, flexible panoply of options and responses and that kind of stuff. Uh, Waymo, Cruise, most of the self-driving systems that are out there, they're actually self-driving today. They have taken a variety of shortcuts in order to be able to get on the street quicker. And those shortcuts, there's a number of them, but they make the system more brittle. And one of the things about br brittleness is you have to cover that by doing a lot. You have to lay, do a lot more groundwork before you put the, the vehicles in there. And that takes people, it takes time, and then it takes effort to go on maintaining. So I think what, what Elon's basically saying is, you know, it, uh, Waymo's putting a certain amount of effort into constantly remapping San Francisco so their cars can drive there. And that takes a certain amount of resources, a certain number of personnel, right? Doing that for the whole United States is not going to work, right? And now, of course, what Waymo will do is they will change their system so they don't need as much of that stuff to make it more accessible. And then as they scale out, they'll go through urban areas and that kind of stuff. So, you know, Waymo, the system, Waymo will, they will eventually be doing what Tesla's doing. You have to, you can't have a scaled up system without it. Like in that sense, what they're doing today doesn't scale. That doesn't mean that Waymo is not going to be successful. Like, I don't agree with that. I think Waymo has plenty of potential to be successful if they keep putting resources in, they decide they want to, and they're willing to go with the flow as the technology changes. If they are, I think there's plenty of plenty of space for them to be successful. But yeah, I totally agree with the technical observation that what they're doing today, like you can't scale that to the United States. That's just not going to work. It has to change. I think I've lost your audio, Farzad. Because I think oh, I've muted myself. Okay. See how professional I am? It's like I don't know what I'm doing, which is true. Uh, still good for about 10 minutes. I just want to be yeah, make sure. sure you're you're still good. Okay, perfect. Uh, it's just this freaking. I don't have a hard by. stop. I just okay. you know, this is we're talking scale. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Uh, let's bring up the next one. And Paul, thank you so much for the ten dollar uh, Australian super chat. I think it's the first time I got that. Thank you so much, man. Uh, another beer. Could G uh, GPT enable FSD to explain its decisions for you? A please explain button. I'm th I think Tesla already kind of does this on the screen, right? It kind of tells you how it's behaving. How do you think about that question? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways to take the question. I'm, I'm going to answer the simple one, and then I'm going to answer the fun one, right? The, okay. the, so the, the simple one, uh, does, does, does a GPT LLM type of thing... Uh, you know, give Tesla more flexibility in terms of uh, in terms of providing a narrative about what the car is doing. Yeah, it totally does. Like there, are, I can imagine lots of different ways of doing that. the The fun, the more fun thing is, uh, people like people talk about neural networks as black boxes, and compared to heuristic code, they're 
you know, a human wrote the heuristic code. So at some point, somebody understood what it was doing or they had an intention anyway. The reality of a lot of big systems is that is that people, we don't really know how they work. Like nobody knows how Microsoft Windows actually works because, you know, it's 25 million lines of code and 10 million of them were written by guys that left the company 10 years ago, right? So, in the, and nobody's going to go back and look at that stuff again. So in the deep sense, you don't really know. It's, uh, there's very interesting work going on in using uh, LLMs to, to make uh, neural networks less of a black box, to actually look inside the weights and help you understand what's going on. And so that could happen too, right? Like that would be fun. Uh, I don't know if Tesla will specifically do it, but they could. Nice. Thank you. Next question. And damn it, I didn't get it. Uh, lab experiment question. Should Tesla get into chip manufacturing to vertically integrate them and increase iteration of the chips? Or can they get what they need in the current future market, eight to $16 billion bots? Uh, <laughs> if we get there, boy. Uh, how do you think about that question? Should uh, Tesla bring chip manufacturing in-house? Uh, no, no. Um, so this requires a little bit of... So chip making is uh, incredibly specialized. Um, and to do it well, you have to do it at really large scale. Like all the people who are really able to make really good chips, they make chips at unbelievable scale. And the way you get to scale is you make lots and lots of chips for lots of different people and lots of applications. It's the only way to get enough volume in your factories to be able to continue cranking, the, cranking up your quality. So that's why you know TSMC and Samsung, the people who really make chips well at scale, they don't just make chips for one product. They make chips for a huge number of products because Chip making benefits from scale in a way that few things do, uh, you know, and that's why we have so few chip makers because, uh, you know, everybody wants to get to the highest scale they can because it's an enormous advantage when you do that. So Tesla itself, they're never internally going to have enough volume to justify trying to get into the chip business. Like there's always going to be somebody they can buy the chip from who's going to be way better. They're going to do a way better job and they're going to do it way cheaper. And I think, as long as you can reliably get the cheap the chips that you want from other people, you don't bring it in-house. Now, you could imagine situations where for some reason you can't get the chip and you have to go into the chip business for security or for onshoring or like whatever the deal is. So I can't predict all of the weird sort of geopolitical things that might happen that might cause uh, Tesla to need to buy a chip company. Like you wouldn't, that's not the thing you do internally. You spin up yourself. You buy a chip company to get into that business. There are small chip companies that do specialty things. Tesla could buy one if they really needed, felt a need to get into that space for IP reasons or something like that. But um, from a pure economic standpoint, no, nobody does it. And there's a really good reason why nobody does it. Very helpful. Thank you for the answer. Let's do a couple more here. And... Uh, Jorgen, thank you so much for the super chat. Will it be possible for us as Tesla car owners to share the compute resources that each car has with Tesla as a big distributed computer cluster used for training? How do you think about that question? Uh, well, you already do share your computer <laughs> with Tesla. Like they're probably using a pretty large fraction of all the compute that your car does. Uh, for training, it doesn't make sense. And one of the big reasons for this is that the you know, there's training and there's inference. Um, inference is running the neural network to get it to do the job it's trained to do. Training is training it to do that job. And it turns out that there are things you do in training 
that you just don't need an inference at all. And uh, and the car, the, the comp chips that are in the cars right now, they don't have that, the stuff to do that well. Like they've been designed to do inference and they do it really well. And they would be much poorer at training. Training also has this other thing where like, um, it's very IO intensive. Like you have to distribute the problem, do some compute, share the results, distribute it. And so the cars end up being IO limited because they got cellular Wi-Fi links and they're just way too slow to break the problem up like that. Now, on the other hand, the cars actually do an enormous amount of compute that is useful for Tesla. Because when the Tesla team says, I need more examples of X, right? They don't collect you know, 50 million hours of video from the whole fleet and then have a server go cranking through it to find examples of X. What they do is they send, they, you can essentially build this fingerprint. You can, you can, in, you can, they can go to the server and they can say, build me a fingerprint of the thing I want, which is kind of this mathematical numerical representation of the thing they're looking for. That thing is really small. You push that out to the fleet and then the cars, when they're driving around, every frame that comes in the cameras, they look for that fingerprint. And when they find uh -huh. them, they send those back. So that's a significant amount of computation that the fleet is doing. And it's doing it just so they can collect that data that the guys back at Tesla said that they wanted. And that, that's the main way the, the fleet collects data in terms of these samples that they want. So if they say, I need lots of pictures of brown Toyotas parked at bent stop signs or something like that. They can come up with that fingerprint, send it out. And like that wow. night, they got lots of examples, as many as the fleet can find of that particular data. And that lets them turn the crank really fast. And they're, they're using the compute in your car to do that fingerprinting so they don't have to search the data after it gets back. Your car is searching the world for the data they want and just sending back the stuff that's relevant to their query. Wow. So so they, they truly do have a network of computers out in the world that are already doing a massive amount of yeah. computation for them. Wow. That's uh that's freaking awesome. Uh let's do let's do the next one. If we still have time for one last one after that, we'll do it. If not, uh we'll wrap it up and go. Uh we'll let James go and uh recover his voice because he's been talking a lot today and I love it. Uh Elango, thank you so much for the uh, five fifty Canadian super chat. Will Tesla be able to reduce the size of the model using techniques like uh Llama? and make FSC work very well in hardware three. So I'm guessing, could they shrink the, the code in the computer so that maybe the, there is a bump in performance, I guess. Is so I think what I've, I might, Elango, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. I think what he's probably referring to is there's a, a Gorgi Gerganov, Ger, Ger, probably butchering his name too, created this library called Llama CPP, which people are using to be able to download these large language models and compress them so you can run them on a laptop or edge devices and whatnot. It's awesome. I'm so glad he did it. Kudos to him. Um, could you do that with, uh, with the stuff, the neural networks and the other things that Tesla is doing in the cars? Yes, and they already do it. Tesla uses techniques they, we've known for a long time that they use quantization, like every model they've ever, and the, the core thing that Llama CPP did was it took four bit quantization. They, they basically took these models that were trained at 16 bit floating point and they quantize them down to four bits to make them so they take a lot less memory, a lot less compute to run. And you do some clever mathematical tricks so that you don't need the full 16 bits. You have to do some extra operations, but you, you can make all the numbers smaller. They run way faster. And more importantly, they take four times less memory to run. So uh, Tesla on day one was doing 8-bit quantization, which at the time was recognized to work well. People knew how to do it. Uh, I think 
it's very likely that hardware four probably has support for doing four bit, six bit, five bit quantization, because this is definitely a benefit. The hardware three itself, uh, Okay, so I went through the patents and I, I took apart some hardware three code with some other guys to try to understand what it's doing. As far as I can tell, it doesn't do quantization below eight bits. I could be wrong about that. It might, might be that they just weren't using it and that was why we didn't see it. Um, beyond that, a lot of the tricks and stuff that, that, uh, that Llama CPP brings to the table is using clever compilers, arranging the data in memory so you don't have to copy it. You, you know, multiple different processors can occupy this. And Elon, had, he talked quite a bit, I don't know, nine months ago, 12 months ago about, you know, Tesla having a compiler team and that being a big deal for them to be able to do stuff. That's them, that's Tesla doing exactly what you're alluding to here. They're, they're, they've got all of this backroom effort going on, building tools that let them take the same neural network or, a neural network that can do the same thing, it produces the same results and make it smaller and make it run faster. And that's gonna keep happening because um, we keep discovering new tricks. We, the human race, we keep discovering new tricks. And um, the, the, the fundamental work that made it possible for the Llama.CPP work, that's less than a year old. So, you know, Tesla didn't know that a year ago, or at least if they knew it, they weren't sharing it with us, <laughs> right? So, so now there's new tricks that they can use and they can bring those to the, to the table and they can make the network. So yeah, I, I'm of the opinion that hardware three, that getting, getting the system to run on hardware three, like is, it's a matter of putting the effort into the optimization to get it down. And they, they do as much of that as they need to at any given point. They don't do more. So it frequently looks like the vehicle is running at its limit because why not use all the compute that, that's in the vehicle? I, I do not at all take that as a sign that they are at the limit of the hard, the theoretical limit of what they can do on the, on the thing. We know even, even aside from quantization, there are things like distillation. There, there are many techniques for basically making a functional equivalent neural network that is much smaller and runs much faster. And the more compute they have, you know, the dojos and the big clusters they build, that makes it easier and easier for them to apply more of these, you know, numerical mathematical techniques to shrink it down and make it fit inside hardware three. So I feel like hardware three's got a lot, lot of room to go yet. Got it. That's very helpful. And then, uh, one more, James. Is that okay? We'll do. Sure. We'll do one more and call it. All right. So let's pull up uh, Crunch's question, producer. If you can, it just came in. Uh, channel member, twenty dollars super chat. Thank you so much, brother. Uh, when might all cars intercommunicate to maximize separation and minimize closing speeds without impacting passenger comfort? I'm wondering if this is this even needed uh, in a, in a future um, state. Yeah. So this? so. He might be talking about V2V, which is this idea that you can, mm -hmm. you know, that there is a V2V and V2I protocols that have been standardized for vehicles to talk to one another. Uh, there's this idea that you can put like the equivalent of Wi-Fi in every car so that you've got this mesh network and cars can talk to other cars and they can share their intentions uh, they can share what they know. So for instance, if you have a, if a car sees a car accident, it can tell the cars behind it, there's a car accident or share. I think there is a point where that stuff ends up being useful kind of at the margin. Um, these car, cars today, they drive in a world that is uh, where the rules are determined by the human drivers. And human drivers have a way of solving this, which is they maintain a safe 
operating distance and they observe what the other cars around them are doing. And, and that actually turns out to be a pretty effective way to communicate between vehicles. I mean, we split up the load, like human drivers, they take responsibility for what's in front of them. And we trust the people behind us to take responsibility for what's in front of them, <laughs> right? That, that's how our laws are written. That's how we drive. And those are our habits. And that protocol, if you follow it, uh, and you observe the cars around you, there's a pretty good amount of communication that you get, you know, the really critical stuff. We get it from observing the other cars. The taillights tail start showing up, you know, you're, gonna, you're coming on, on a slowdown, stuff like that. So all of that human communication, the cars can already use. Um, they're not as good at using it as they will be. When they're really good at using it, they'll be better at using it than human beings are. And that'll get us a lot of the way to like safe communication. Um, but at long term, sure, I, I would be really surprised if like 20 years from now, we don't have V2V communication. Like mm. it's less useful in a world where very few cars have it. But as more and more cars are self-driving cars, they've got a lot of computers, they have standard protocols and that kind of stuff. There comes a day where just like turning it on for a bunch of cars ends up making a really big difference. Today, it wouldn't do much. Would it would it be so profound to that it eliminates any sort of traffic signals? So you get rid of stop signs, traffic lights, and they just it just if turns you get into all the, a, if you get all the humans off the road. Yeah. yeah okay. Got it. That's it, a big step. I mean, <laughs> the the reflexes that these systems have, and the the, the speed with their. I mean, human reflexes are a real significant limitation, and and this is mm. not the human reflexes of a completely sober completely alert 20 year old. Right. right but the, right. you know, the reflexes of the 1%, you know, grandma driving on Sunday, you know, just blind in one eye, whatever the thing is like, you, you, that, like the system has to accommodate the people at the tail end who have the worst mm. reflexes and the least, you know, confidence in their, in their perceptions and that kind of stuff. When you take that off the road, yeah, you know, now you've got, you know, cars driving 80 miles an hour that are a foot apart and that are, you know, doing things that would cause a human's head to spin because they seem completely impossible. And it's just right. very tight coordination between the vehicles. I mean, one of the, one of the exciting things that people have talked about for a long time is this idea that if you have that kind of coordination with cars, that the carrying capacity of our highways like doubles or triples, just like that, oh, sure. right? And that's sure. even if you don't allow the speed limit to go up, right? You raise the speed limit and you double or triple the carrying capacity. And all of a sudden you've got five times as much traffic flowing smoothly, even under adverse circumstances as you can get today. And the advantage of that is you don't have to spend a lot of money. You don't have to bulldoze any neighborhoods, right? Yeah. You just make the cars better. Basically. You just make, you just make them talk to each yeah, other. But, yeah, but you know that's really far away because you have to get all the humans off the roads, or you have to have human-only yeah. roads if you're going to pull that trick. Yeah, got it. James, thank you so much, man. Two hours, incredible knowledge. Really appreciate your time as always. You're always so generous with your time, and I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you for that, man. Uh, any parting words uh, for us before we let you go? Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, everybody. Make sure you hydrate. All right. Uh, thank you, James. Thank you, producer wife. Thank you, mods. Thank you, everybody in the uh, in the community posting awesome comments. Thank you to all the super chats. Really, really appreciate it. Producer wife, round of applause as always, doing a killer job producing. Look at her giving <laughs> her. I love that. <laughs> and uh, all right, uh, you're welcome anytime, James. I always love speaking with you, and I'm sure we'll connect at some point in the future. And then when you're in town, let me know because I got $91 worth of beers to buy you. So <laughs> let's make sure we do that. All right, everybody. We'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye.